The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! We're back, and we're back with another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Doing great. And we have two special guests this time around. Uh, we have Daniel's lovely wife and podcasting partner from Oi Spaceman, Shana. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Great. Thanks for being here. We I'm have a on this podcast. What's that? Oh, no. Am I the first woman on your podcast? Yes. I am going to bring the word feminist in as often as possible. Because I oh, never do that. Yeah, Daniel oh. never does that, yeah. That or uh, vagina. I don't know. What what word doesn't get mentioned enough? Anyways, introduce, introduce <laughs> probably, our guest. Probably with these guys, it's going to be penis. <laughs> <laughs> and that is our uh, other guest host, uh, Ryan. How are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Mm. So we're going to be doing a couple of Mel Brooks films this time around. This was another, I believe this was a, either your suggestion, Daniel, or was it your suggestion from from Shana through you? I think it was kind of, I was, I mean, you know, I, I'm always like, let's bounce around and do some different stuff. I think I was talking to Shana about what she wanted to, like, we were kind of talking about her maybe coming on. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Mel Brooks, she's like, I'd love to come on and talk about Mel Brooks. I have to, okay, so let me... Let me give you more of a reason for this. My my dad is a California Jew who grew up... I mean, he was born in 1950, lived in San Bernardino, so, like, Mel Brooks movies are, like, my bread and butter. It is what I grew up on. Mel Brooks might as well be a member of my family, the way I feel about him. <laughs> so he mentioned something about History of the World Part 1, and I was like, ah! So I think that's how Mel Brooks got chosen. Right on. People, you have to have a Jew. It's the same with me, but I'm just not Jewish. But right. I feel the same way about Mel. But you live, like, in California, so... Hold on, so Ryan. You're, you're, you're Jew by osmosis at this point? Is that, is that what no, you're saying? No, it's just my family loves Mel Brooks. And yeah, well, I grew up... I learned all the curse words from Mel Brooks films. That's how I learned them. Well, they're California Jew jokes. They're specific. So you get, at the very least, the Californianess of it, naturally. I, I did have a Jewish friend growing up, so maybe that's a factor, that's too. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> that's not quite as uh, Jew-adjacent as, like, marrying a Jew, but, you know, it's close. Yeah. So we, we are going to go through uh, two Mel Brooks films. Uh, we're going to be doing History of the World Part 1 and Dracula, Dead and Loving It. So we're going to go from... Some may say good to really awful. <laughs> we'll see how everyone thinks what they think of it as we get when we get to the actual films. Uh, but before that, we actually do have two comments uh, this time around this week. First one I'm going to get to is a shorter one that just basically came in tonight, and this was uh, from the man underwater uh, as the handily goes by or she goes by. 
You never know. They were uh, doing a comment under our uh, Nazi zombie film, Shockwaves, that we uh, reviewed quite a while back. They say uh, they agree it's a great and underrated horror film. Amazing what they did with just a tiny budget. Interesting to see what they could do with uh, $5 million plus. And I think they must have selected the Nazi actors by how long they could hold their breath underwater. I seem to recall listening to the commentary on the DVD, and they actually stated that the guys they use as the extras for the uh, underwater zombies are, uh, I guess they were all like swimmers or athletes of some sort, I believe. So, very, very, very possible. But our big comment that we have, I got this earlier last week, I believe it was, and this is from a fan of Oi Spaceman, uh, an acquaintance of yours, Daniel. Uh, we, Henry... we don't have any fans on Oi Spaceman, it's no. fine. <laughs> well, none that none that send you any any mail anymore, apparently. But uh, we get occasional be... messages. Usually, people just come on our show if they if they yeah. actually listen to us. It's, it's that kind of podcast. Yeah, uh, but this is from uh, Henry. Henry. Uh, yeah. He says, hi, having listened to most every episode of Daniel's Oi Spaceman, I decided to check out this podcast. I was pleasantly surprised to see atmospheric movies like Beyond the Black Rainbow and older European horror. I listened to roughly ten of your podcasts. You inspired me to relive Ravenous with my wife and some of the teen sex comedies by myself. Uh, (laughs) He says, "Uh, I have been cautious about listening to reviews of movies... I haven't seen, but I've, uh, but having recently shown my wife Black Sabbath as part of Family Shocktober, I listened anyway. Hearing how much fun you had watching Bay of Blood, I just added it to my Amazon Prime list. I'll also be keeping an eye out for some of your list recommendations. Speaking of recommendations, he says, I strongly suggest A Virgin Among the Living Dead. It's the best Franco film I've ever seen, hands down. I haven't listened to your review of Vamp. Piro's Lesbos yet, but I remember Virgin being more substantial and much more interesting. Just to be sure to get the original cut, there is a second version with extra material from Gene Rowland spliced in. The Rowland material is cool in its own right, but literally has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Alright, well thank you very much Henry for the uh, comment. Do you, any of you guys have anything to uh, add to that? Have, have you guys covered uh, Zombie 2 yet? No, we haven't actually. Uh, well, we... Another one of those movies where it originally got released as zombie, mm-hmm. and then the Romero movies hit, and they're like, "Oh, we're gonna stop calling them whatever we were. Now they're zombies," um, and they add footage at the beginning and the end of the movie that really doesn't make sense. However, it does have a zombie versus shark underwater scene. Yep. And one of the slowest. Um, piece of wood slowly entering an eyeball scene FX I've ever seen in the whole movie. I think it is worth it for those two effects. So that's pretty much the only reason to watch that movie. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a Fulci film. Uh, we we probably will get to it at some point. We did. Fulci cover- lies. That's really the thing. Oh. That's, that's what I learned from uh, Giallo. That's one of those things. Fulci loves his eyes. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely want to check out. Um, based on Henry's recommendation, I'm going to check out that film for sure. Um, 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 well, we were going to do uh, She Killed in Ecstasy at some point in the new year, so why don't we just make it those two films for that episode? 
Sounds like a plan. Totally up for that. I know Paul will be uh, up for that. Paul's not here, by the way, this this week because he is drinking his ass off because it is his birthday uh, weekend. So happy birthday, Paul! Happy birthday, Paul! He couldn't even be bothered to fast forward through the Mel Brooks films. That's the, no, no. And, well, is, you know, the ironic thing is, he actually watched. He he messaged me and said he actually watched Dracula Dead and Loving It earlier in the week, and now he's not even showing up for the fucking podcast to uh, talk about it. So. <laughs> so uh, as he as he mentioned in our uh, little private chat on Facebook today, Paul, you're a douchebag because Henry failed to mention that you're a douchebag. So we'll mention it now. You're a douchebag. Yeah. So there you go. I don't but, know yeah. if he's a douchebag or why. I think I missed something. But yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. This is this is the uh, continuing conversation we have on this podcast, and uh, the that guests Paul's a have no, no. Well, Paul's just a douchebag in general. Okay. Paul doesn't watch the films, Shana. Like he just he basically has seen them, most of the old horror films, and just fast forwards through them in about eight minutes right before recording, and then we'll just describe things that he remembers from like five years ago, and that's what Paul's place in the podcast is. Man, why didn't you tell me I could have done that with this movie? That would have been great. <laughs> when we get there, I think we'll talk about that a bit, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much, uh, guys, for the comments. Hope to have Henry uh, give us some more comments. Uh, it's always nice to have some long, actual, substantial comments. So, uh, Henry and Greg, you son of a bitch. You haven't commented in a couple weeks now, so uh, get back on that. Okay, so now we'll move on. We're gonna we're not going to do Movie God this week because since we have so many hosts on and everything, we're, we're going to have enough conversation to fill the podcast, I think. And Movie God has been sort of <laughs> going on and on the last couple episodes. It was like taking up half the fucking podcast. So we're just going to jump into uh, anything we've been uh, watching as of late, anything we might have purchased or watched movie or TV-wise. So uh, I'll just open up the uh, floor to uh, whoever wants to go first. I've been re-watching Twin Peaks for probably the fourth or fifth time. Nice. Nice. Because I love that show. And every every time I watch it, I fall more and more in love with Sherilyn Fenn. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, been wa- MNT's score. Oh, yeah. The music's fantastic, of course. But, well, I mean, I love the whole show and all the characters and everything. But, yeah, I've been re-watching that. Other than that, nothing, nothing right now. Just... Uh, so you do you know. have do you have a major nerd boner for uh, the new Twin Peaks, or are you kind of just cautious about it? Cautious. I, I try not to get too excited about some of these things that are coming back or yeah. being redone or or whatever's going on these days. So so we'll see. I had the same feeling for Star Wars Episode Seven. Whether they're making a sequel to Big Lebowski, you know, stuff like that. I just yeah. Eh, Try not to get too excited about it. I, I guess when they first announced Twin Peaks coming back, there was a bit of initial excitement, but that's for me is worn off, and I'll just go through the original series again and rewatch that. Because fourth or fifth time through, you still pick up. There's a lot of stuff that you miss. And you're an obsessive but, David Lynch fan, says Daniel. I'm definitely a Lynch fan, but I I, I, I haven't rewatched a lot of his stuff. Lynch fan than obsessive Lynch fan really like isn't that kind of what David Lynch does is inspire a certain level of uh, obsessive compulsive disorder in uh, terms of uh, I believe what you're referring to is existential meditation it is what he currently teaches all the <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will second because I watch a lot of TV in fact I would generally refer to it as a shit ton my current Netflix on repeats are iZombie 
I read the original comic. I still like the comic better, but uh, if you're a fan of Veronica Mars, the writing is really similar. Uh, yeah, so I've had iZombie on repeat just because it is funny, and it's, I mean, it's upbeat because it's still on mainstream TV. And then there's Jessica Jones, which Daniel and I watched together and were just kind of devastated um, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Jessica Jones, I'll just kind of, I mean, it, it really is everything. There have been a lot of think pieces that have been put out about this over the last couple of weeks, and I've been really fascinated with the conversation around it. I think that it's deep enough. Shannon and I are actually talking about doing a, a, a kind of a sideline on an Only Space Band episode and just talking about Jessica Jones. So we'll see if uh, that happens. Well, I suggested the sideline be on David Tennant, since that is at least somewhat connected to Doctor Who. It's so, fine. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had people request that we talk about Jessica Jones. But actually. yeah, um, Jessica Jones, I had someone ask me who my favorite character was, and I, I think I, I gave my canned answer, which was, you know, Jessica. Mm -hmm. And if you are a watcher of the show, the... The twin sister, I think, has given amazing performances, and is just there's a lot going on. Um, but my favorite character is the fucking writing. What I read comic books for, which you don't usually see, like comic book geeks get what they want out of the transition, and this definitely hits home with like taking comic book stories seriously. That's what yeah. we that and Steven Universe, which is fucking awesome and gender queer as fuck, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, with Jessica Jones, uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually I actually think I liked it a lot better than Daredevil, just because the writing was on a couple different levels deeper than what's going on in Daredevil, and I really liked the characters. I just I just thought they worked a lot better. I, I liked the sort of grounded realism that sort of is in these. Netflix series underneath the big spectacle of the actual Marvel films. Man, it just worked really well. Uh, David Tennant, just a total different turn from his Doctor Who character. And I, I was just amazed. Like, I just binge-watched it. I, I started watching it, watched the first episode, and it was the same thing with Daredevil. It's like you watch the first couple episodes, and then you can't stop watching. And yeah, I haven't watched Daredevil yet, so that should be next. Yeah, Daredevil's really good, too. And I like that it seems like each one of these Netflix series, they're going for a different feel and a different mood for each one, so they're not all samey. So uh, Daredevil had a certain feel to it, more more action movie feel to it uh, to some degree. And Jessica Jones has a bit of a little bit of a detective noir feel to it because, you know, that's her profession and everything. But it also had a lot more going on about, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, rape, all kinds of other little things going on in it. And oh, I was, sounds like fun. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, re I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Ryan, though, the, the weird thing about it is the show is about PTSD, all these horrible issues, but you love it anyway. Even though, it's like, I mean, it's 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 kind of you know, it's about a cycle of abuse. It's about toxic masculinity and about nice guy syndrome and basically everything that led to Gamergate and all that kind of kind of stuff. And it's uh, all in there. And it's a really effective just TV show. It also scratches that Veronica Mars itch for me just a little bit. You know that it's it's got a little bit of that kind of element to it. As and well. I think that that's why I mentioned uh, also watching iZombie because iZombie is fun. It's like the family-friendly version. If you want to kick it up a notch, Jessica Jones is like the one that's going to tear your heart out a little bit. 
And just just the acting in the in the oh yeah, it's just so good. Like you, you just get really deeply involved with all the characters as you follow them along. And I love that they're doing these little, basically mini seasons on Netflix where you they just have enough episodes, just right. You know, going for more like the uh, BBC model instead of like the typical American television model where you have like twenty two episodes a season or more. Um, yeah. I think. I think it. I think it helps them keep their stories a bit more concise and well written, and they don't go off on wild tangents. So, um, I'm I'm looking forward to the the new seasons. I I don't know if they're doing new seasons before they do the Defenders movie or whatever. Uh, I think I, I don't know what they're doing there, but uh, I, I've completely lost track of the Marvel calendar. Um, yeah. But what I also love about it is it sticks closer to, like you're saying, a kind of BBC schedule. But it also kind of goes way back to serial writing, period. Serials and uh, newspapers, serials and on the radio, and ultimately comic books. So, mm-hmm. like, comic book storylines, if you actually pay them tribute the way that Jessica Jones does, where... You have one big story arc, but you'll move on with the same characters. Comic books, when they're really well written, that's why they're written in a series. Yeah. So that you can establish some things and move on with a new purpose. So, I'm jazzed about it, clearly. I do have a couple of uh, complaints about Jessica Jones, just as a... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, the, the racial politics are a little bit lacking. Um, it's definitely a story where all the black people are uh, pawns of the uh, the white heroes. Uh, there's definitely an element of that, um, which hopefully will be corrected by the Luke Cage. Mm. And um, they try and make fun of it at one point, so I'm hoping that they follow through with that. I mean, it's... Uh, well, let's not get into details on that, but I mean, the racial politics, I, I don't want to dig into that without like us actually yeah. talking about it. Um, the other thing is, I do think that 13 episodes feels like a little bit much. I think that the, towards the last third or so, I mean, it feels like there's a little bit of wheel spinning, and we could have moved it. I think 10 episodes would have been, like, about perfect. I think um, um, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I, I actually even like the idea of 10 even better, honestly. I mean, it's not terrible. It's just kind of like it does lose a little bit of that momentum towards the end. I think it loses the momentum, but I think it's more in a beautiful way of circling the drain for me. (laughs) Um, To get... By the way, I have an MFA in poetry. (laughs) Just in case it doesn't become obvious later. Anyway... While we're talking about Dracula Dead and Loving It, you might bring out a Sistine or something? uh, (laughs) Maybe not with Dracula, but with History of the World Part 1, damn, it gets all all my poets in a and a twizzle. I don't know. Is that a way of saying you were horny watching it? We'll get there. I don't know. Is now the time we start talking about that movie? He's leading the podcast. Yes, lead. Uh, we are well, leading. We'll, we'll get to him here in just a second. I just want to quickly mention uh, iZombie. Is that that one where where the woman, she's a zombie detective and she eats body parts to... Yeah, so let me... I, I should... So here's my problem with the transfer from comic to TV, just in case someone in your audience wants to comment back to it. So in the comic book, uh, which was illustrated by the Allreds, who are a married couple, they have a very distinctive visual style. I don't even remember who fucking wrote it, because that's the kind of fan I am. I was like, Allred is pretty. In the comic... She has a friend that's a ghost. There's more female characters. Things are a little bit more worked out. But 
the gist is the same. She becomes a zombie without of her own means, um, but she discovers that if you eat brains, you stay more human-like, and you basically get little... You cutie. gain personality traits and stuff from Pers the brain you've eaten. Oh, okay. Memories. So it's been interesting because it also has dealt with some mental issues and with PTSD because she'd eat some PTSD brain or she'd eat some um, agoraphobic brain. So she would experience what it was like to experience that. So that has been interesting, um, again, talking about shows that are kind of having the same conversations, but one is PG and one is, at the very least, PG-13, if not like a soft R. Uh, it's soft R, yeah. Definitely an R. I mean, it's it's. I mean, there there's there's enough gore in that alone to push it into R. Kind of oh yeah, uh, definitely with Daredevil. Daredevil, some of the stuff Kingpin does is just like, wow, you got away with that. <laughs> the dude's arm being shoved into a blender towards the end of uh, Jessica Jones. There's mm -hmm. blood everywhere. Oh, spoiler! I can't watch that. Uh, it's ruined for Ryan now. Yeah, well. No, you totally can. That's the hard part, man. You totally can. Sorry. I'll um, never watch it, don't worry. I'm lazy, I was sorry. thinking about Fargo when I saw that, so I mean... Oh, yeah. Fargo's an R. Okay. I but hope so. Isn't there just full-on like nudity and sex in Fargo? I don't think there's nudity. Uh, there is a little bit of nudity in Fargo, yeah. Yeah. Hey, why, aren't we, why aren't we talking about Fargo? I love to talk about uh, I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. So. Old Jewish men who like to make jokes about farts and poops and shit. Mm. Yeah, we are going to move on. Uh, oh, we're to make fun of Hitler. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go on to the main event now, and we're going to immediately segue into History of the World Part 1 from 1981. Naked dawn of man to the magnificence of the Bible. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these fifteen, ten, ten commandments. From the glory that was Rome to the dark evils of the Spanish Inquisition. For now begins the Inquisition. To the French Revolution with its squalor and its splendor. The peasants may grow violent. They are my people. I am their sovereign. I love them. Paul! History of the World, Part 1, starring... It's good to be the king. More women! More wine! More! I... And submit to the king. Last one. Oh, that's let off! You're beautiful Stop women. it! Let's end this meeting on a high note. Hey, what country are you from? Ethiopia. What part? 125th Street. Oh. I'm Miriam. I'm a vestal virgin. I'm really sorry to hear that. You should have been here over 30 grains ago. Please ravage me. Gee, I just ate. Drama. 
Do you require a blindfold? None. Have you any last words? None. Test the guillotine. Hold. Action. Where are you going? I don't know. Romance. Say when. 8.30. Spectacle. The Inquisition. What a show. We know you're wishing that we go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay. Mel Brooks, History of the World, Part 1. Ten million years in the making. written and directed by Mel Brooks, and I'm going to give it over to whoever wants to describe the plot and go, because to be honest, as much as I am a fan of Mel Brooks, I actually thought I had watched History of the World Part 1 at some point, but it must have just been in pieces, because I had not watched the entire film. Uh, and Dracula didn't loving it, I had watched it once. And I'm more familiar with sort of classic uh, era Mel Brooks, I guess, if, if, if Oh, that's... man. See, the 80s to me are classic era... Mel Brooks, which is telling, because 1981 was the year that my older sister was born, so maybe there's a different reason my dad loved these movies, is he was raising kids and sitting and watching Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm more familiar with uh, Blazing Saddles oh, yeah. uh, and stuff like that. So, and uh, of course I am really familiar with Spaceballs, because I grew up watching Spaceballs, but... In the 1980s, he only did essentially three films. So History of the World was just one I had never watched the entire thing. And so I'm more of a casual, on-the-side kind of Brooks fan, I guess, to some degree. So I'm glad I have uh, two affirmed, uh, our confirmed Brooks nerds here to actually uh, get into this. So whoever whoever wants to jump in and describe sort of the structure and plot of History of the World Part 1, feel free. It's a bunch of vignettes. It, it, it's interesting. He's trying to go through the early history. So you start with Mel's take on the beginning of man, which is a bunch of apes jerking off, <laughs> essentially, as they rise out of the ground to the tune of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. What I love about Mel Brooks is he does this nice pastiche of, like, I'm going to make fun of a movie, and then I'm just going to make fun of people. And he tends to pick relevant things. And when they are good relevant things, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, that is still like respected at this time and making fun of it and having monkeys jerk off, that is a joke that stands the test of time, my friends. That, that movie is <laughs> only 13 years old at this point. Like, I mean, right. I mean, today, 2001 is kind of, I mean, that's almost 50 years ago now. At the time, it was only, like, 13 years old, so it was still, I mean, not, like, a recent movie, but it would have been definitely, people would have remembered seeing it. A relevant show. Yeah, and then the film continues through the caveman days. Then you have a little bit of biblical stuff. Then you kind of move into the whole, well, I guess the Old, Test, Old Testament stuff, into Roman times, into French Revolution. You missed the Inquisition. Oh, missed the Spanish Inquisition, which was the big song and dance. Yeah, um, yeah, I did forget about that, but um, it kind of ends it right, right as we kind of turn into the 20th century is kind of when it ends. But he always tells his stories from the point of view of like it's always sucked to be Jewish, 
It's always sucked to be poor. It's always sucked to be black. So he plays everything for some kind of contemporary similarity. So like the Spanish Inquisition as as like a 1940s style musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, a decent 1940s style musical. Yeah. That. Um, and I mean, that's what's so funny is now he's having these movies turned into musicals because they were musicals the first time around. So big picture, I think the thing with History of the World is it's not one movie. It's really two movies with a couple of vignettes. I mean, you know, because the, yeah. the Donna Man stuff is kind of just a, kind of an intro. The uh, bit with the Old Testament is really just right. kind of kind of lame gag, honestly. Um, and then the the Inquisition sequence just kind of connects the the two big pieces. You've really got, I mean, story wise, you've really got a parody of a, a Roman Empire kind of sword and sandal movie, and yeah. you've got a parody right. of the French Revolution movie with kind of right. other assorted bits added in. Um, and ultimately, it would be nice if it was a little bit more thematically linked, and it kind of See, felt okay. like more one movie. Let me blow your minds here, because this is this is my point as the California Jew watching this. He's also telling the history of Jews in cinema. He's also going through, like, the representation of what it meant to be a Jew watching movies at a certain time. Because if you watch a movie with the Roman emperors and the slaves and the the Jews in the audience, all like, can you imagine being in, like, the most popular movie, the biggest budget movie, and, like, your people are still kind of being persecuted in the 40s. I don't know. There was some shit going on. I think we were getting killed. And Mel Brooks is, like, responding to that time 10 years later and being like, look at how fucking over the top that was. I'm pretty sure this movie was made more than 10 years after the 40s. But... I know. I'm <laughs> saying, like, 20 years. Him growing up and being able to like, respond like to Like, 40 years movies. later. But, like, growing up and so, responding so to those it's, movies. I, I looked up a little bit about Mel Brooks's background. Mel yeah. Brooks kind of grew up in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and born in 1926. He would have been roughly, I mean, contemporaneous with the guys who created Superman and Batman and kind of in that same mm-hmm. kind of thing. He got his start on, on the stage as an actor yeah. and as a writer and then became kind of an early television guy with Sid because, Caesar. Because the whole thing is, why is there the caveman part? Because Sid Caesar. Yeah, he was writing for Sid Caesar, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, and that he was, was Sid Caesar. Yeah. Um, no, he, he wrote for Sid Caesar's early shows. I mean, he was basically in television from the time there mm-hmm. wasn't television. Well, he, he created and wrote, co-wrote Get Smart, which yeah. I remember mm-hmm. growing up on back in the day. I mean, I early... I, I remember watching Get Smart when I was younger. I didn't know that was Mel until Mel later Brooks, years. Mel yeah. Brooks was kind of a creator. He was really only involved with the pilot, and then kind of, like, he really wasn't, like, intimately involved with the rest of the show. But, um, like, I, I think you have to read into that. Some of this is a commentary of being a Jew in the industry during a time where it was totally okay to make that joke of, oh, he's a Jew in the industry. Well, um, uh, he's a he's a borscht belt comedian, and that's kind of what you have to understand. He he comes from that this very um, stagey vaudevillian, you know, let's dance and put on a show kind of style, very yeah. broad. But I think what in Mel Brooks's best films, what he does is he brings more than just a spoof. He brings a certain kind of anger and a political edge to what he does. Yeah, and I think World Part One is one of the best examples of that. Even though so I think. Much. I mean, I'm kind of saying, starting with the, the negatives, and that it doesn't 
it doesn't really cohere as a movie. I mean, it just kind of works as yeah. um, really lopsided in the way that it's structured. But I think that like once you kind of understand what it is, it really holds up on repeat viewings. Yeah, I, I, Go ahead, Lee. Sorry, I'm. I was just gonna say I liked it because it, it felt like I, I didn't necessarily need like a strong narrative through the whole thing. It, it felt like a really good anthology of comedy bits yeah. is, is what it felt like to me. The, the, I think the biggest thing I took away from it is that everything engaged me. Like, I was watching it, and there was never a time where I was bored or I wanted to turn away and do something else. Even even though not necessarily everything was a big laugh, right. everything was kind of a, you know, gives me a little smile or a little chuckle. Yeah, you know? like the first art critic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, it's... It's not going to make you probably laugh out loud, but it's like, yeah, that's silly. That's Mel Brooks. There's just a ton of jokes, and it's not even vaudeville. It's like a generation removed from vaudeville at that point. At this and, point, it's it's made in 81, but it's like parodying stuff from like 30 years before that. You know, it's stuff yeah, well, well, what I'm saying is like the, the performers are all like, like Sid Caesar, Shecky Green, people like that. They're all like guys that basically, you know, came to prominence in like the 1950s. And they're all guys that Brooks was working with. Right. Well, who's the narrator? It's Orson Welles. Orson Welles. And yeah. by, by the way, uh, when I first heard him starting narrating, I immediately thought he was going to go into a commercial about wine. And Where <laughs> <laughs> is that? Yeah. I, I first saw this film when I was maybe like 12 or 13. I'm um, actually on Encore back in the day. Jesus. Oh. Uh, because... See, and this is the thing. I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. I remember growing up Sundays when my dad had his day off and he would be like half awake, half asleep on the couch, and we'd watch Blazing Saddles or Spaceballs or this. I I feel like I guess I am kind of a classic Brooksian. Yeah. When I I first saw it, I just called the title Mm -hmm. and went, oh, History of the World Part 1, that sounds kind of fascinating. Had no idea what it. I didn't know it was a comedy when I first started. <laughs> um, you know, and yes. I was, you know, I was, I was definitely that kid. I was like, oh, this sounds like a fascinating, like little documentary I'd like to watch. And then you kind of get into it and go, oh, this is weird. And then as you kind of get deeper into it, mm-hmm. approaching this not knowing what you're watching is probably the absolute best way to watch it. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I mean. Lee, I'm, I'm just going to throw this in here now while I'm talking. Uh, you realize that this shares a cast member with a film we've already covered on this show, on this uh, podcast? It shares a cast member with the Beach Girls. Oh, Jesus, does it? Yeah, uh, remember the blonde girl who plays Val? Her name is uh, Jenna Cow. Okay, uh, yeah. The uh, Vestal Virgins are oh. all Playboy Playmates, and one of them... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I recall seeing uh, Hugh Hefner in there. Uh, I invented yeah. the centerfold, my new invention, yeah. 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 Oh, there's uh, so many great actors in this. I mean, it's like... John Hurt yeah. plays Jesus. Like, come yeah. on. Because he just did a bunch of heavy roles, and he wanted to he wanted to get into a comedy, so he's yeah. Jesus in this, yeah. Well, and this is Brooks at probably his kind of crux point of being famous enough to be, like, well-liked, and probably get a decent budget, and kind of knew who the up-and-coming people were, because he had his hand on the pulse at that moment. So there's lots of things that are funny, and got funnier as it aged, as you were like, oh yeah, that person's in it, and that person's well, in mean, it. Basically, basically, this kind of movie, you can just like hire your buddies, and then hire like guest stars who will just come in and come in for four hours on a Tuesday, and go, alright, that's your, yeah. that, you know, 
the fact that John Hurt plays Jesus and it's just like, yeah, that's John Hurt. Look, you know. Yeah. yeah. Funny as shit. Yeah. I mean, then you, got, then you, you got like Harvey Corman just coming in and stealing the fucking show. Right. Like, I mean, he's he's in a bunch of films. You got Madeline Kahn, who's mm-hmm. amazing oh in everything. Can we talk about Madeline Kahn for a second? That's yep, it. Go ahead. That's all that needs to be said. I mean, like, she is just. <laughs> Madeline so Kahn amazing. is never hotter than when she's hilarious in Mel Brooks films. Yeah. And yeah. she's, like, in skin tight gold lame and still, like, just funny as shit. I don't know. Exactly. I yeah. Yeah. I, Say I when, 8.30, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Full on New Yorker accent, you know, in the Roman times, cause, mm-hmm. because it's Mel Brooks. Yeah. And it's her. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, it's such a like, um, you know, she she's sexually voracious. I mean, she's literally, what is it, Empress uh, Nympho or something? Nympho, yeah. yeah. Um, and she's surrounded by Vestal Virgins who aren't allowed to have sex or do any right. of that stuff. <laughs> Literally playing this character, you know, and it's, I mean, it's played for laughs that she's wanting sex all the time, but she's not shamed for it, which I think is... Uh, oh, yeah, she's like, totally, all the girls behind her are like, oh, look at her, she gets to go pick out the one she's fucking, isn't that great? <laughs> And I have to say, or, like, or the like seven, you know, they're, they're, which, which turns into a whole song. Yes, yes, yeah. no, 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 yes, yes. <laughs> but like, so I told Daniel as we were watching this, I may be uncomfortable talking about this movie to some degree because I realize how much of my sexual awakenings were with this movie because there's a lot of sex. And yeah. like, just lots of sex. I think I think we'll movie. get into the. Uh, the boobages when we start talking about the uh, the French the, Revolution. Se- oh my goodness, you know? the cleavage! But you know, starting out with it, the fact that you know, at nine I had to be told what a eunuch was apparently. To be- <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, that probably went over my head the first time I watched this. For yeah, sure. This was, I guess, this was what Gregory Hines' first uh, film role. Yeah, his very first film role. And he and he was replacing Richard Pryor apparently, who was also slated for Blazing Saddles, and yeah. had to turn that down as well. So, uh, hey, great for Gregory Hines, but at the same time, I'm kind of wondering, like, how different would that uh, part had been if it had been Richard Pryor up there doing like the soft shoes on the slave block? You know, like, yeah. I don't know. It, it might have been a. It might almost have been like dynamically different. I, I think. Yeah. I think Pryor would have played it more as a as a stand up, as as the angry Richard Pryor stand up routine, as opposed to Gregory Hines who plays it. More on that vaudeville, uh, you know, the tap, the sashi kind of uh, bit. I don't know that Richard Pryor. I, I mean, I think ultimately it would have been written differently for Richard Pryor. I, Probably. And I think. I mean, we have to kind of assume that throughout. I shot an arrow into my chariot. You know, that would have been. <laughs> but throughout Mel Brooks, I mean, it's it's definitely carefully written, but there has to be a fair amount of improvised. Stuff going on. I was thinking that, yeah. And it, especially because watching this movie made me think of Wet Hot American Summer because I just watched that in the documentary about it. It does have that feeling of a bunch of people who are just really fucking funny and good at what they do getting to hang out and make fun of the way that they were raised. 
I don't see this in quite the... I mean, there's less of an improvisational style. Like, that implies a certain... Like, th- I'm this, not saying that there was an improv that then led to an edited script, but I, there's... This feels very... I mean, this does not feel like an improv script. This feels like Mel Brooks writing one-liners for people. But I think he definitely wrote oh. their actors, you know? There, there's, there's so many one-liners in here that I still reference with my family all the time. Especially oh when Mel Brooks' character, Comicus, is in line trying to get his um, unemployment pay. <laughs> and they ask what his job is, and he says, a stand-up philosopher. And the woman's like, oh, a bullshit artist. I mean, yeah, be, uh, be Arthur. Be Arthur. Yeah, I mean, my family, <laughs> we reference that all the time. I am not surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I bring you these 15, gonna ten skip. commandments. <laughs> he drops one of the tablets on the ground. I am going <laughs> to skip forward like, a bit. But, like, this movie has one of my favorite jokes of all time that I reference all the time that no one ever gets. And it is the moment when the uh, guy who's been in jail lets all of his birds free and yeah. they're all fucking right. dead. Right. And, like, for some free. reason, it is just twisted. And every once in a while, I just want to walk around and go, free, free, thump, thump, thump. Nobody gets that. Which is just as absurdist enough to kind of feel more Monty Python than Mel Brooks. It really you know? is. Like, it, it feels yeah. like it's a deleted gag from Holy Grail, really. You know? yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's why I don't have a complaint about this not having like a strong narrative through it. Because right. it does have that absurd Monty Python kind of bent to it. Where it just it works like it flows really well. I feel so. I don't need it to be like a strong thorough line through the entire. I, I, I'm not trying to like diminish the film necessarily. I'm just trying to say that like uh, I mean it is yeah. kind of it is kind of one of those things where I almost wish there was a full length sword and sandal Mel Brooks movie and then a full length French Revolution movie. Yeah. I, I feel like there's I think you would have run out of jokes. No yeah. the guy. I love him to death. But I I think he knows what his limits are in this movie. Yeah, I think actually we'll, we will get to that probably later when we're talking about Dracula Den loving it as as far as you know stretching the joke out maybe too far. You think? I, 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 yeah, I, I think here keeping the vignettes short, like he's got two big vignettes and then a bunch of interspliced little pieces... Mm-hmm. I think it works a lot better. It keeps, you know, the jokes don't run on too long. Everything works really well. And I I really appreciate that. Like, I think that works well because you just hit, 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 joke, joke, joke. Like Like I said, I'm watching it. I'm smiling. I'm chuckling. Every once in a while I get a big laugh. I'm never turning away or doing something else because comparing this to a lot of modern comedies that I can think of in the last 20 years or so where... I don't necessarily get that, where sometimes I'm just watching a movie, I'm not laughing, and it's just like I'm kind of bored for a while waiting for the next joke. Here, everything's going. Like, he's or got it's so many... awkward comedy. I'm so tired of awkward comedy. Yeah. I love how angry this film is, uh, particularly about yeah. the, the, the the treatment of poor people. I mean, that if there's, a, if there's a running theme, it's about, like, oppressed people, like, getting fucked over by rich people or... Uh, Tortures. And that's, that's the sort of the that's is, sort of the, the you know. Yeah, it starts at, at at Caesar's Palace, and that's one of the great gags is when they're going to Caesar's Palace, and it's yeah. actually the hotel and casino in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when he's talking about like he offends Caesar and all that, but I think the other thing is the vignettes they let they help him let it you know work in the song and dance stuff because mm-hmm. Mel loves the song and dance, and that's able to he's able to mix that in. 
Yeah. And yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of reading up on him. Like, he's he was a musician. He was he studied music back in the day, and uh, he, had a, he wrote a Broadway musical in 1962. Yeah, I mean, he's very musically inclined, and I know he's written a lot of Grammy songs in his an Oscar film. and a uh, uh, an Emmy yeah. and the Hugo and a Nebula. I mean, he's a pretty he's a pretty radical Jew. No, no kidding. Like he he's He's good for the Jews. Did, did anybody like, did anybody check out the rap song he did? Oh my God! No, I've I've never seen that. But, seriously. Did he write the one in Robin Hood Men in Tights? Because that was uh, no, 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 no. Okay. There is a rap song that he did for this movie. Mel Brooks, at age 55, wrote and recorded a rap song called "It's Good to Be the King." Oh. <laughs> and you can watch it on YouTube if you are so inclined. And it's not really. I want to do that right now, but I won't. That line is so full of shit, even when he's saying it. So tongue-in-cheek and, you know, fuck you at the same time. Oh, I love Malbrooks. And it's what he sort of uses over and over again in later movies, too. Like, it's good to be the president or whatever in Spaceballs. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the people who are in are always fucking idiots. And yeah. the people who have an idea of what's going on are the ones holding the piss bucket. Yeah. Well, and it's also his moment where pretty much all his films, maybe starting with Blazing Saddles, where he breaks the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. And that's well, that was one of the major breakings of the fourth wall in history of the world. Is turns to the camera and says, "It's good to be the king." It's good to be the king. Well, the thing with Blazing Saddles, I mean, just talking about like just kind of running out of gags. He basically runs out of gags in terms of doing an old west movie, and then suddenly just goes, "All right, we're gonna do a musical, and we're gonna break the fourth wall, and we're just gonna, you know, and." Uh, there well, it starts a- before that with, with Harvey Corman's character when he's doing his little monologue and he turns to the camera and says, like, why am I talking to you? <laughs> <laughs> There's all, yeah, he also, uh, where he's, uh, what, the uh, Duke de Monet or, or whatever. Count, Monet. Count de Monet. Yeah. Count. Count de Monet. Count de Monet. Yeah. Yeah. No, but seriously, my entire childhood I have watched this movie. I like. I was watching this and making jokes along with it, and like giggling to myself and thinking of watching it with my dad. Um, well, that kind of Count, Count de Monet kind of goes back to a lot of a lot of his films. He'll just name a character a name to set up like one joke. Uh huh. You know, he's willing to do that. Like, screw it, we'll call it Count the Money. Just you know, and it goes back to Blazing Saddles with it's Headley, and and uh, and he'll just. You know, that, that was more played up in Blazing Saddles, but well, I mean, almost all his films, someone's going to be named that person maybe just to set up one joke at some point. There's a character in the Roman section called Mucus, just so he could say, the streets will run with mucus. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah he, does, he just does that all the time. I mean, I think partially what I like about this is most of his humor is nerdy Jewish uncle humor. It, it's kind of a nerdy thing to be like, okay, let's we're making joke about Roman history as well as jokes about the Roman history movies and. I mean, there are little jokes about of... Latin phrases in this movie. Yeah. yeah this is yeah. spelling, like alone on all the signs and stuff. Yeah, the V. Use of the V is yeah. amazing. The greatest joke in cinema history. Hey, Josephus. Hey, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, no, that's when Oedipus is walking around looking for... Yeah, Oedipus, yeah, yeah. And, and there's, like... And he literally calls him a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, mother, motherfucker ain't blind as he seems, yeah. 
but and that's kind of how I feel about this movie is that I could go line by line, joke by joke, and talk about why it is funny for multiple reasons. I think that that says a lot about Mel Brooks as like a craftsman at this point of. The, the reason I love the Spanish Inquisition so much is I love those fucking 1940s musicals that had the Esther Williams fucking pool scenes and mm-hmm. over the top. Synchronized swimmers. Yeah, yeah. So adding this extra layer to it and having it be a pastiche plus a parody. And then you have this little side-by-side jokey bit where, you know, the guy's talking about having his, his balls burned off. <laughs> like, oh man, what a fucking shame, you know, and he's just That's like... That's Jackie Mason. Is that Jackie? Oh, Jackie Mason. So good. I mean, the Torque Amadeus ones, is, in, in particular, is it's completely played straight. Like, it's a completely, like, brilliant Bugsby Berkeley-style musical number. It's so effectively done, and yet just below the surface is, like, this really angry man talking about 500 years ago we were... Tortured by the Spanish, like and you know, like it's disgustingly, and it's just it's so great. I I agree with you, Daniel. There, that's like the genius of him, and that goes back to sort of his obsession with Hitler as well. Makes fun of this really evil people or person. Well, and this is this is just like you pick your targets well, and you like on one level, this is a really really dark film. I mean, this this is a completely pitch black. It's not hard to imagine a really, really dark version of this. The only thing that makes it watchable, really, is the fact that the humor is so broad. It works on this kind of, like, almost like, man, that's so dumb, I can't believe I laughed at it level. And he's really good at mixing the, like, you know, the, the potty humor, you know, the, the, uh, the Count the Monet pissing on his shoes stuff. Right. Side the, like, implied rape sequence, you know, like, it's... Yeah. These two things work side by side because one is completely juvenile and ridiculous, and the other is completely dark and realistic, but well, played at this like super like heightened level. And the thing is, you watch it now, and, be, and and I think, oh, it could never get made now because people would be so offended. Yeah. The funny thing is, is they are only making fun of the people who are the assholes, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the whole in the French Revolution when they're like, "Why do we always sound like this?" You know, and they're yeah. making you, fun of this. Frenchman says, "Yeah," and well, he's, again, writing, he's writing the pardon for for father. How do you say that? How do you write that in French? <laughs> I will. I will say that I, I do see that as the uh, the lesser version of the uh, Life of Brian joke about the uh, Romans go home. You know, um, but yeah, I, I took right. Latin, so you know there is that as well. So we do we want to kind of wrap up history of the world and then yeah um I'll just uh, mention a couple things I wanted to mention about this one here. Uh, you really talked about the French Revolution sequence, so that would be the only other thing I'd say. I mean, we well, kind of... there's also the part two at the end. I wanna yeah, we we will get to on. that. Um, I just I just wanted to say uh, first off, there's a lot of matte paintings in this one. Yeah. I mean, there, there's an extensive amount of matte paintings in this one, which I really appreciate. They look really fucking good. I think, honestly, the costumes and everything, like we're saying how close these are to, like, the sword and sandals and historical costume dramas and stuff like that. Like, if he, if he had actually wanted to make a straight movie, he could have. Like, yeah. he, he really could have. Like, he do, it's that good-looking, these film, uh, these sort of vignettes are that, that great. 
And I think that that's why the jokes carry so well. Mm-hmm. Because you believe it. Like, you're, you're already sucked into the world, and then he's bombarding you with the jokes. And I think it just works really well. You, you just go with it. And you're not looking at anything and going, oh, that's fucking shoddy, or, oh, that's really cheap. Like, everything looks really good. So mm-hmm. I, I think it works really well in that regard. All the boobs are very attractive. And, and they're real, which is awesome. Yeah. Well, some of the Playmate oh, models maybe aren't. Because <laughs> there, there, there's quite a few... Uh, I noticed yeah, uh, when you get to the Vestal Virgin scene, there's quite a few blonde Playmates, which is sort of apparently Hugh Hefner's preference in that one. And some of them look a little enhanced, should be said. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> that could be. So, I mean, they do make a joke of Cloris Leachman's boobs getting popped by the... Yeah, nose. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it's really good. I, I guess the pretty much the key sequence in this really is the French Revolution stuff. And I know Daniel has some stuff he wants to say about this one, so uh, we'll just... Throw it right over to you, Dan. If you, whatever your your thoughts are on that. Well, um, I guess I really just wanted to. Uh, well, I got a question for him. Is it really good to be the king? <laughs> it's <laughs> fucking good to be the king <laughs> until you king. die. Until you die. Until, until you <laughs> the end. Um, I love the uh, the tale of two cities kind of element to this. You mm-hmm. know, uh, the, the the doubling and the um mm-hmm. idea of kind of exploring that. Going back to what you were just saying a minute ago, the the idea that you really could make like a, a serious movie out of this, like like this is one of those things. It's not hard to imagine a kind of farcical, mistaken identity kind of comedy. Like like it's it's not hard to imagine that. Brooks kind of has his own other thing going, and he absolutely portrays the abject poverty of the people who are at the bottom of society, and then the like defeat aristocracy. Just how stupid and silly they are is uh, is very much in, in essence from the beginning. I really love that kind of high and low aspect to it. Again, it kind of goes back to that, like, Brooks is angry about this. I mean, this is this mm-hmm. is years ago, but yeah. this is not. Well, Brooks, is, Brooks is definitely trying to make a point not just about the French Revolution, but about wealthy people in general and about the, the kind of decadence and the, I mean, the, the fact that the, that the king is, is just actively like raping people you know, and, well, and you know, that all of the women's boobs are like super up high and displayed because you know that was uh, according to that period. And right, right. I mean, you know, but it's <laughs> it's referencing also the movies he grew up on that were hugely sexist and hugely commodified women. I mean, and talking about how we still commodify I, women, I, I like think, it's tongue in cheek. I think know? Mel Brooks, and, I, and we'll get into this when we talk about the next movie. But I think Mel Brooks also just likes the boobs, and I, you know, yeah, I know, um, yeah, yeah. Clean, he's well, a clean. There's a little no question of an openly sexist part about it, of like you know. What do we do when we make movies? We make the chicks push with their boobs. But hey, it's because we think their boobs are a different part of them. The dark-haired girl who's uh, the king, like, uh, puts his face on her boobs and just, like, very briefly. I looked up uh, the people in this movie. She ends up being, a uh, like, a TV presenter, uh, like, in uh, in Venezuela or something. Like, like she's, she was actually a, a, like, a person who is, like, still working as a TV presenter today. Well, the, uh, the the blonde the blonde girl who is like the the daughter who's looking to get her father pardoned or whatever, Pamela Stevenson. you yeah. see what the entire film. Oh Jesus! She, she oh. went on. She went on to be like some sort of scientist or doctor or something like that. Like she's. Psychiatrist. 
Yeah, yeah, psychiatrist, yeah. And, um, and also ran for parliament or something as well. Uh, yeah, I looked at everybody's Wikipedia page when I was... Uh, Sorry, when I was bored and watching Dracula Dead and loving it, I was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, um, right? So, um, yeah, no, the, uh, the the woman who played Miriam in the uh, Roman sequences also, uh, she uh, went on to have a... Uh, she's still a working actress, you know, so, so you got yeah. to get a lot of TV. But I, I really love the the French Revolution sequence. It kind of, uh, structurally, it's it's really is just a clothesline for which to, to hang uh, Mel Brooks's one-liners. Uh, I'm not going to complain about that. It, it does kind of, you know, he, he kind of rushes the plot at, at certain points and just, like, there's no, there, there's not really a narrative through line. But it's really funny, and it really follows a mood, and I think that, like, the, it is the strongest sequence in the film, I think, thematically, personally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, anyone with any uh, other final thoughts on this one before we move on to the next film? The part, um, the part two. I mean, I think that's al- almost the biggest joke is Jews in space. Teases part two, but there's never ever been a part two, and there never el- ever will be a part two. Jews in space, which is revisited in Robin Hood Men in Tights as a different song, but still, Jews in space. Yeah. And essentially, also basically got worked into space balls to a certain degree, anyway. Right. If you yeah. Think about it. So yeah. Yeah. It, well. And it looks just like those cheesy early '80s Star Wars knockoffs. Like, I mean, actually, it looks it looks better than those cheesy early '80s Star Wars knockoffs. It looks better than Star Crash. Um, you look at that and compare it to like the Last Starfighter, and it's like, you know, actually these they they, they don't look terribly different. It's it's a, uh, it's a thing. Yeah, I actually, will. there was a there was an actual uh, historian. I forget who it was. I think it's maybe it's Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, yes. Yes. Who wrote a history of the world volume one mm-hmm. while in prison and then died while he was writing it, and that's what the that's the whole joke of like history of the world part one, which is just one of those like yeah. jokes that like it's like nerdy gay uncle, like your yeah. nerdy gay uncle. What? Okay. <laughs> not gay. Wow, was that Freudian? I don't even know. Mel, Mel Brooks, uh, you know. Mel Brooks is so not. As far not as I know, gay. he's not gay. But, no, you know, he's married to a very lovely he, woman he does, for many years. He does years. have a lot of gay jokes in this, and uh, he no, does. Yeah, know. early on, where he's like, you know, where the the first marriage occurred, and then the first gay marriage occurred. That was yeah. in the pre-story. Well, it's, it's funny, all the, all the gay characters in this, other than the uh, gay marriage thing, is... And actually, that was like, what, ten years before there was actually a gay marriage in Denmark, I think, was the first one, something did, like did that. Did we both read the Wikipedia page, Lee? We did, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, def- I definitely had to scour the Wikipedia page for some stuff, but uh, yeah, like, all the all the gay characters in this are all, like, like retainers or second-in-commands or whatever to, like, who whatever monarch or uh, leader is going on. So you, you got, like, a, a gay character doing the announcements for Nero. Don DeLuise, by the way, who actually was gay, and you have the uh, foppish one who's with Harvey Corman. There's oh, couple- that actor, too, is so... Yeah. All I know is Dom DeLuise, he's got such an amazing little scene in Robin Hood Men. Well, I think, yeah, and I think this, I think this, like, showcases, like, I I think a lot of people maybe give him a bit of slack, like, a bit of flack, like, he's, oh, he's just Burt Reynolds' gay friend that he put in all his movies or whatever, like, fuck no, he he was actually really funny and really talented, so, I I mean. I didn't know Dom DeLuise was gay, I'm, uh, I feel, I feel really uh, bad for that. 
not knowing he was gay, but but yeah, I mean, he's he, he was really good in this. Like he he was well, you know he was better than he his inspires he doesn't buy. I mean, it's essentially the oh, same. Yeah, like, yeah, know, like... yeah. He doesn't buy is, and I think that that's one of the things that I love about Mel Brooks is not only are the movies still good, a lot of the best parts of his movies have affected a lot of pop culture. And um, those are the parts that I still love about him. He doesn't buy. Um, the, the fact that he, you know, pulling the grapes off of everything and <laughs> uh, the fact that, you know, everyone is either hilarious or dead and the, the br- brutality of it, but at the same time, it's, I mean, he's so sloppy, it's an art. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, I mean, he very much is this creature of privilege, this creature of power, has no need of maintaining that power through anything that he does. Like, he can make terrible decisions and it doesn't matter. He can do what he wants. He has no... No one can tell him no. And it is kind of that, like, power corrupts sort of thing. And I, even though the movie doesn't confront that directly, I mean... It dances around a it, well, it's definitely portraying that as that, like, no one will ever tell Caesar no because he's the Caesar. If, if the power of comedy... I mean, stand-up philosopher who, who you know, tells truth to power. That's essentially what, mm-hmm. you know, Comicus's role in that sequence is, is to uh, say what no one else will say. And I think that that's, uh, I mean, it's deeper than you would think going into this movie. You know? he, is, he is part of that era of comedians that were well-read in the history of comedy. Well, they knew vaudeville, mean? they knew stage, they knew... And the Jewish tradition of theater was really separate from even that. There was a tradition of Yiddish theater. There's a tradition of all these kinds of things. And, I mean, he just touches on all of it, briefly though it may be, but he has that knowledge to pull on. And I think that that's really what rewards it, the rewatching is the fact that, like, he knew his shit. He knew what he was making fun of, and he could recreate it well, and... So, moving on to Dracula Dead Loving It. I think he was a little out of touch with the times. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I guess I guess we're all basically in agreement that History of the World Part 1 is an excellent fucking film. Just, just immaculately put together and really fucking awesome and well worth anyone's time. Uh, and it's not just like a one-time watch, too. It's it's like no. a... Definitely oh, quotable... So uh, yeah, uh, unless anyone has anyone else uh, or anyone else has anything to add to it, uh, I guess we I guess we will move on to uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It from 1995. This is the frightening and shocking tale of Count Dracula. Vampires do exist. This one we face is unlike any other. He can change the most innocent of humans. Oh, Jonathan, let me kiss you. But you see, I'm British. So are these. <laughs> Women are rendered powerless under his spell. Stand up. 
Not you. Sit. You stand. No, sit. No, stand. Now, walk to the terrace door. Watch out! His evil desire has no end. She's alive? She's Nos Faraccio. She's Italian? Up there! Make no mistake. He must be stopped. Leslie Nielsen, Peter McNichol, Stephen Weber, Amy Yazbeck, Lizette Anthony, Harvey Corman, and Mel Brooks. If she dies, a victim of this unspeakable creature, she will become one herself. What? She will become one herself. Dracula, dead and loving it. Ah, it's good to be dead. <laughs> which ended up being the last film that Mel Brooks has directed so far. Again, I'll just throw it out there. Anyone wants to uh, pick up the uh, plot for this one and, and uh, describe it? It's Dracula. It's as if you were to take Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola film, and add fart noises behind it. That's exactly <laughs> for, um, for me. For me, the... It was interesting because I rem- that was the first and o- the one and only Mel Brooks film that I ever saw in theaters, and I remember the family getting excited to go see it and going to see it. How depressing! It didn't didn't uh, didn't quite hit like his past films for us. I I watched this for the first time yesterday. Yeah, me too. Holy crap! Is it a piece of shit? <laughs> I I'm gonna defend it to some degree, okay. but I, I, I will say this it. Rewatching it, it was actually funnier than I remember. It very much exists in that like nineteen ninety five comedy. Like it, it very much is that kind of. This is a low budget comedy. It's got a bunch of actors you don't necessarily know. It's got very those people broad. from Wings. It's got you know yeah. Beck is hot and she super. does the same accent she does in Robin Hood Prince and Tights, which is her like I'm pretending to be tights. European. Uh, Steve, Steven Weber, who I like on Wings, but he cannot hold an accent to save his life. No, I love <laughs> it, and that's fine. I, I mean... Uh, so, I, let me just say this first and get it out of the way. I don't really like Leslie Nielsen or his movies. Okay. This, really? Well, yeah, I'm just... I have not really watched one, the, and it the, held my the, attention. The Naked Gun movies, I think, are good. I... But but like that was when it was fresh, you know that that was. Kind of I, I like I like Naked Gun. I'll, I'll give him that. The first one is really good. Okay, after after that, it's like it. After that, it's... Watch it. anyway. But like, there is so much Leslie Nielsen in this, and it feels more like what did you say, Leslie Nielsen vehicle than a Mel I was Mel going Brooks to do movie. this. I was going to explain Fine, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is why we don't discuss things before we podcast. Oh my god, I'm <laughs> married or something. Ew. I feel like there are two kind of competing goals in this film. There's the kind of broad Leslie Nielsen comedy, mm-hmm. and there's the like more clever uh, Mel Brooks comedy kind of buried within it. Because I feel like the Mel Brooks sections of this film, like when he's on screen or when he's mm-hmm. on the scene, it's not necessarily that it's as incisive as some of his best work, 
but it definitely elevates the material, and it really kind of gives this this much more. Um, the the film kind of comes alive a little bit more, and then you kind of cut back to Leslie Nielsen, and Leslie Nielsen I think is a really talented or was a really talented comic performer. He had a really great um, timing and a really great. He's doing his Nielsen thing, but it becomes really broad and dumb. You know. Yeah, Mister World Part One, as broad as it gets, it's never dumb, and I think that's the that's the thing. The thing, the thing about Nielsen is he was a very underrated dramatic actor, and I think comedy comedy is generally a lot harder to do, and it's definitely hard to transition to from doing dramatic acting for the start of your career. To some degree, he's kind of dogging it. He's doing the same kind of shtick that he does for like the last 15 years at that point, doing the Zucker brother films. And essentially, that he's bringing that sensibility to this film. But he, you know, he's he's the straight man. He plays everything straight, and he's reacting to the really wacky shit that happens around him. And unfortunately, I think kind of this movie kind of caters to his Zucker Brothers stuff to maybe way way too much. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, and. I mean, this film is not just necessarily just Coppola's uh, adaptation of Dracula from 1992. Like, there's definitely a lot of that here. Uh, Mel Brooks is actually going back to a lot of other Dracula adaptations. Like, at one point, I believe he was considering doing this in black and white, like Young Frankenstein. Uh, Nielsen in this, he is the Bela Lugosi Dracula, essentially. Like, he, he's basically doing a Bela Lugosi impersonation in this film, and he does a pretty good job. You wouldn't say Nielsen is bad. I'm not. I'm not complaining. No, no, no. I just it's, feel like he's pulling in a different direction. I feel like mm-hmm. he, he, I, he goes broad. Well, and what I want to kind of reference back to the other movie. One of the reasons I like it so much is I think that even the really talented people he has for only a short, few short minutes. Mel Brooks uses them well. He the pieces, even if they're the jokes or one-liners, even if they aren't written for that actor, they end up feeling written for that actor. Maybe that's a part of his direction. Maybe that's a part of his writing. I don't know. Whatever is different about Dracula Dead and loving it, that kind of mix of knowing what is best for this actor to do in this role um, and being able to write it and direct it, something just seems off. For me, and part of that might just be that I don't really like it, it feels kind of naked gun humor. It, it feels like it, there's not like in History of the World Part One. I mean, and in uh, Brooks's best films, you, you get a sense of like there's a central idea. I mean, you know, Blazing Saddles is ultimately about using the Western to criticize then current issues of racism within, like, a, a, a broader context. And then you add a bunch of Looney Tunes-style humor to make the medicine go down, you know? Young mm-hmm. Frankenstein is a, is a broadly satirical look at a particular genre, but made with an almost meticulous eye towards what those, uh, like, James Whale films of the 30s looked like. You look at something like this, and it just feels like there are some elements that I really enjoy. They're like the um, the uh, the doctor uh, talking about like giving enemas to people. Yeah, that <laughs> I, I legitimately laughed at like four times. Oh my no, I know I did as well. I wrote that down. I actually took notes on, or not notes, but bullet points, and one of them was just enema. It'll make it better. I mean, because that's that's such like connected to like Victorian ideas of like how medicine works. Like you just purified right. people. Oh, give them an enema. They were so obsessed. Done. with it. 
Um, <laughs> the idea, like Stephen Weber's character, like being terrified of the uh, budding sexuality of Amy Yasbeck's character, I think. Oh, Amy Yasbeck. Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I wish I wish because uh, we know that John Ritter was married to Amy Aspic. I wish they'd had him in the uh, uh, Stephen Weber role. Honestly, yeah. I, that would have been funny. Been it's very clear that like really like Stephen Weber did not give a shit. He's just joking around. One positive I will say about the film is that it is pretty meticulously directed. I mean, it it does basically follow the Dracula story to a T. It it changes a couple things around. It also does a good job of aping a lot of the dialogue from the original Dracula film of El Lugosi. Like a lot of the dialogue is directly lifted from that film, and and then they he just adds like a poop joke at the end, like you know, <laughs> like like the bats shitting on the steps and stuff. Like he just adds that in, you know. <laughs> The, the problem here, and I think we mentioned this earlier, is this is an example of Mel Brooks stretching the joke far too long, and it doesn't work in a feature length, where it would have worked if this had been a 30-minute segment in another film. And this seems to be the like the kind of theme he was going for in like the later half of his career, where he started with Spaceballs, essentially, where it's like spoof... Uh, essentially, more more or less, just one film instead of like a whole incredibly you know varied genre of films. Although there were so a couple different films spoofed in Spaceballs, but essentially it was Star Wars. And then you get on to, and everyone forgets about Life Stinks, which is like a totally atypical film for Brooks. Yeah, I would love to discuss Life Stinks at some point on this podcast. Yeah, we'll do that. Well, and then, I, but yeah, going into Robin Hood. Yeah, and Robin Hood, like, uh, like essentially, like, although it does herald back to some of like those Robin Hood films from the '40s and '50s and stuff, it essentially is, you know, the fucking Kevin Costner Robin Hood spoofed. Yeah, and then well, you get I think to that's hear... well. I think Robin Hood's more well done with that single genre than than Dracula yeah. Dead Loving. Yeah, it. yeah, and yeah. I think the big difference for me too was growing up, I loved those '40s and '50s musicals. And that's what this movie makes fun of, in addition to all the other things it's making fun of. I didn't see the 90s Dracula. I didn't, you know, I haven't watched a lot of older horror, which I don't know why I should. I'm a big horror fan. Um, There's no song and dance in Dracula. I think that's... <laughs> that's a big part, part of it, I mean, too. like... It, There's it, no song it, and dance. Something. Can, can, I, can I put this in a word? What? It's lazy. Like yeah. it is. It is. I will say one of my favorite scenes of all time, though, is when they're putting the stake through the heart and in the twenty the gallons blood of blood just, <laughs> just goes everywhere. Yeah. And they go back. He's like, "There's so much blood," and they go back. Why are you covering it? Location, location, location. Well, can, I, can I say I actually remember when I was like 15 or so, and like uh, I'd watched like the the e. Um, uh, news segments about the movies, and I saw like a behind-the-scenes segment when they were shooting that sequence. And I remember, I remember that from 20 years ago, watching that a uh, little bit, and just going like, "Well, that looks dumb." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's a it's a nice sequence. It's well timed, but it's very um, it's it's not that it's bad. It's it is it's cheap. It's cheap. It's really cheap. It just it just kind of feels like. So what are you saying with the like? What's the what's the 
what's the idea? What's the theme? Well, yeah, like, there, well, there's no, there's nothing like compared to History World Part One. There's no, there's no mistake. My 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 thought is was I, I liked it because there's like well we could we wanted we got to do the stake through the heart thing, and we want to have a little blood. But they're like, what if we just go so overboard that's so ridiculous? Okay, then cut out the other half of the movie, and I'd be okay with it. <laughs> well, yeah, there's other problems. Like, like I still really love that scene because it's so ridiculous. Well, yeah, and uh, I'm not. I I would I would argue that like it's nice that it's there. It's nice that it, I get the point of that. Mm-hmm. It's just and it's and it's timed well for what it is, but it's just kind of the most obvious version of that joke. Yeah, it's just an yeah, obvious joke. Yeah. Well, well like if you if you imagine another version where like every time uh, Helsing Van Helsing comes by, like basically like they alternate like hitting the stake in, and then like Van Helsing goes, oh, I'm gonna tap it, and he taps it, and then it's like, oh no, everything's fine. Now all the blood's gone, and then Stephen Weber hits it, and then someone yeah. hit with blood or something. You see, and that's I mean, a better joke. That's a better joke. It just feels like it's it's a. I mean, even that isn't a very good joke. That's no, just, but it's still a better one. Yeah. It's it's just sort of like it's it's funny because like you just see him covered in it. Well, the the other good thing is when he's like, she's alive. She's Nosferatu. She's Italian. <laughs> I mean, that's like a perfect Mel Brooks joke right there. I, I, well, they also the yes we have no Nosferatu. Yes, we have yeah. no bananas joke. Yeah. Yeah. There are great Mel Brooks move, moments yeah. in the movie, but yeah. Yeah. the yes and no thing. Yeah. In this movie, like there, there is, there is maybe one little bit of thematical kind of thing going on here, but I mean, there, there's nothing deep like anything going on in History World Part One. Like, I think the only thing he's really making fun of here, like the only thing he's really talking about, is sort of Victorian hypocrisy and being well, afraid of sex and stuff like that. Because basically, this movie is essentially a vehicle for women to throw their bosoms in dudes' faces and for them to reluctantly reject them. <laughs> wouldn't you love to see that, like, Mel Brooks actually, like, actively talking about, like, the, the kind of upper-class Victorian hypocrisies about, like, sexual behavior? Mm-hmm. I think that would be amazing. Why did we not see that movie instead of... Well, if you want if you want to see that movie, watch uh, the Christopher Lee Dracula film Taste the Blood of Dracula because that's essentially all that film is about is the hypocrisy of Victorian values. There is there is a before we get to that because that's deep, very deep. But uh, <laughs> I, I love the fact that like, yeah, pretty much every yeah I'm done. If we want to go back and talk about history of the world part one again, I'm back in. Sh- but... Shane, Shane is literally texting people on our phone right now. I like, am. I am. This is what I did during the movie, so I figure this is what right. I should probably be doing during the conversation of the I, movie. I cannot blame you at all. We got a third of the way in, and Shane is like, do we have to keep watching this? I'm like, we probably should, you know. But uh, I do think... Third to fast forward? Third. Yes, I think after the first third it got better. Did I still want to stop watching it? Yeah. I wanted to return to my binge watching of iZombie. I said, really, we should just fast forward through this, you know, <laughs> like... It's just like uh, most of his films, he's always making fun of accents, and I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so early on, he's like, yes, I'm scheduled to meet Count okay. Dracula. Like, Dracula? Can Dracula, I just... Dracula. Scheduled? <laughs> Ryan is just, just announcing all you have to do to make him happy with the movie is make fun of accents, and he's happy. It's not making fun of accents. It's just... Mel Brooks making fun of accents. It's, it's just 
So Mel Brooks, it's just amazing. Yeah, my, my my favorite gag, other than the anima jokes, was the uh, the the bit where um, neither uh, Dracula or Van Helsing will let the other have the last word. There's yes, like yeah. Moldavian or whatever. And uh, I I really like again. It's, there's there's like a comedy of manners in this. Like there's a bit, right. there's there's some really smart stuff. Can I tell you what movie this reminds me of the most? Mm-hmm. Like my issues with it, it reminds me of Idiocracy, which okay. is a really dumb movie that really should be smarter than it is. I watch this and I'm like, Mel Brooks, you're better than this. Like you, you, the, the, and it's it's the wasted potential. And like mm-hmm. Mel Brooks, like you directed the shit out of this. Like this is really well directed, particularly for '95. The early visual gag with the shadow on the wall. Right. I think, yeah. Really well done. Um, the the sequence with the mirror towards the end. I think there's some really nice like comedy visual sequences. I mean, Mel Brooks is a really talented director, and I think he doesn't get enough credit for being that. There's clearly like energy put into this, and it just kind of like, but ultimately the script doesn't hang together. Well, I, I yeah. feel again that this is one where if you look at it visually and you look at like essentially where the actors are really pulling the dialogue from the original Lugosi film and stuff like that, where if he had wanted to, he could have directed this as a straight Dracula adaptation again. But yeah, it's, it's just kind of wasted potential, and I think it's kind of telling that this was sort of his last directed film because it was like a big bomb for him. But he, he was he was like after History of the World Part One, all of his movies as far as box office and critical acclaim were kind of diminishing returns. Spaceballs wasn't even a big success. Yeah, that was that was a VHS success right there. I think yeah. people realized how good Spaceball was. But once this they got out of the theaters. Yeah, but this movie is almost like the opposite side of the coin from History of the World Part One because History of the World Part Part One its budget was around 10 to 11 million dollars made a box office of 30 million dollars essentially this is like the direct opposite this is a budget of yeah. 30 million dollars and it made about 10 million yeah. so yeah i mean uh, i don't know if that was what basically killed uh, brooks well, the director, i mean the man's almost 90 years old so i mean that's got to be a bit of yeah, a factor he would have been uh, like 70 at the time he mm-hmm. yeah there, there is kind of that element of just like, you know what, it's, you know. He's a little bit out of touch. He, he can't make the same witty jokes. And, you know, yeah. kind of okay about that. I think what's really been great for him is being able to take these movies and making actually even sillier Broadway musicals now because it makes more sense. But, I mean, God damn it, he's old. <laughs> and, like, when you think about it, he's really only had, like, really maybe two major bombs in his entire career. I mean, other than that, I mean, everything for him has been pretty much fucking golden. So, I mean, <laughs> even, no. his de- even his decline was pretty much small. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if people think the Robin Hood Men Tights is part of that decline, I mean, I... I still really like that film. It's a, it's a funny film. It's a I funny still, film. there's so much good stuff in that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, Dracula Dead Loving It, that was, I definitely remember coming out of the theater disappointed in that film, definitely. Yeah. But, All right, uh, I guess we're getting close to wrapping up here. I mean, if anyone has any sort of final overarching thoughts. Every woman in Dracula Dead and Loving It has uh, prominently dist- displayed bosoms. 
Like, this oh yeah, is, well, I mean that's that's a throwback to Hammer films, like right, right. I mean, it, it, it very much is, and a a like certain shots of this look very Hammer, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, climbing up the steps to the uh, to the castle towards the end when uh, Van Helsing and uh, Stephen Weber's character, are, like there, like there's a very clear, obvious kind of map shot that's, that's very Hammer to me, and uh, there's some other. You know, it's it's very. And that's what I say. Like it's well directed. It looks good, especially for a you know kind of a low budget comedy in the mid nineties. Like, I mean, Keir went into this on the on the production level. I just wish that the script kind of lived up. Yeah. Um, comedies live and die on their scripts and their performances, and I, I you know it really is just like the material doesn't deserve the the amount of effort that they put. Yeah, I think actually my favorite part of this, uh, other than looking at Amy Asbeck, is uh, Peter <laughs> McNichol as Renfield. I think he did a great job as Renfield, and mm-hmm. I love that scene with uh, Harvey Corman where they're sitting at the table there yeah, and he can't bugs. stop eating bugs. Like, yeah, you just ate a bug. No, I didn't. It's, just, it's in your mouth. It's struggling to survive. Yeah, exactly. Fighting for survival. It's like that. I thought yeah. that was. Funny, I mean, but. No, it's right before they're like, take him away and give him an enema. Yeah. Give him an enema. Enema. Yeah. Yeah, give him two enemas. <laughs> yeah, give him two. Yeah, it's like that's a solution to everything. Give him enemas. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I honestly, I don't hate this film. I don't think it's terrible or anything, but it is like. It's not big... Brooks for me. No, it, it's just a, it's just a comedy film in the '90s, and it's got a few laughs, but for the most part, it's like you're yeah. sitting through it like. It's, okay. It's a Leslie Nielsen vehicle, you know. Oh, and the dance sequences, like the dance sequences, are amazing. You know, and and I think that is a direct steal. Like uh, a couple of the moments from this are kind of a direct steal from uh, Polanski's uh, "The Fearless Vampire Killers." The the dance sequence in particular, I think, is kind of a nod back to that. And some of the carriage riding scenes and stuff are as well. That's something uh, Brooks always does. Like he he pulls back from like a lot of older stuff and just sort of subtly throws it in there. Uh, like, I, I think maybe a lot of people probably wouldn't even recognize that because they probably are not familiar. Fearless Vampire Killers? Definitely. I fall into that category, yeah. But I, but I was looking at it, I was like, okay, that dancing sequence, that looks a lot like one of the big sequences from Polanski's film. So, But overall, you know, it's like, okay, I, the joke's kind of wearing thin and this is kind of a... It's kind of a joke that could have done well in like a fifteen to thirty minute vignette in a other in some other film, but stretching it out through a feature length just doesn't quite work, I think. But. Can I can I also say um, that the uh, sorry I had somewhere I was going with that. <laughs> I, I will say I was I was a bit surprised when you, when you because I, I I got to chat with Daniel and we he talk, he mentioned doing a uh, podcast on Mel Brooks. And the film suggested. I was surprised to see Dracula come up as is well, one of the films because yeah, well, I always thought that was his weakest as well. But I, I mean, it was fun to revisit. And like I said, I actually laughed. I think maybe a little bit more all these years later for some reason. My uh, expectations were very low going into it from my memory, <laughs> so uh, it, it surprised me a little bit on some level. Yeah, we're kind of we're kind of obtuse when, with our film picks at some some point. Like it's like sometimes we'll you know oh let's do this director and let's pick like one of his greatest films and something yeah. no one's ever watched. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's also like you, if you pick the good ones, it's it's sometimes more interesting to look at the bad ones and say yeah. why they all. I mean, 
I, I was also kind of like, Lee's like, oh, yeah, let's do the Dracula one. I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah, well, I, I just felt like if we did History World Part 1 and Young Frankenstein, we we're just going to sit here and, like, jerk each other off for the entire fucking podcast. Yeah. Like, oh, this movie's Daniel great. Love that, though. Oh, yeah, but Young Frankenstein is great in so many different ways. I mean, really what we should have done is Young Frankenstein and Dracula Dead and Loving It. You know, that would have uh, been... Well, yeah, that could have been a good comparison, too. Or Dracula Dead and... Or, I mean, Young Frankenstein just as its own fucking podcast because that's such a great I, movie that you can just do I, I was, a whole one. I was arguing for doing the Mel Brooks 1974 and just do Blazing Saddles and uh, Young Frankenstein because they're both 1974. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just I just kind of felt like when I was thinking about it... You can and, still do that. Yeah, we can still do it. I mean, in the future, we can definitely do it. I'm, I'm... If you want me back, I talk. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, we can do some more in the future, definitely. I'm going to for that. I got from this podcast today, Shana. Like, you know, you're you're the new co-host. That's the... Uh... Yes. I will say this to, to kind of wrap this all up is when Mel dies, it's going to be very sad for me. I literally might have to, like, take the day off of work. Oh, Yeah. And just watch all his films. I mean, it's it's gonna be a very sad day for me when he passes. A family member dying. It's gonna be on par with that for me. Yeah. yeah. He's getting up. He's getting up there, and a lot of his contemporaries yeah. and the people he used are are gone now. Like, there's a couple still alive. Like, uh, I I think uh, I think Shecky Green is still alive. Is Sid Caesar still alive? I think he's still alive as well. But a lot of them are gone. Madeline Kahn died yeah. way too young. Way too. Yeah. I remember when she passed. That was pretty sad. Yeah, and uh, uh, Harvey Corman's gone. Oh, well, even when Mel's wife uh, passed, Anne um, Bancroft yeah. uh, felt bad for the man. It's like he, he sh it should have been the other way around, if anything. There's a really good documentary kind of interview with him. I think it was on Netflix. That it's it's very Mel Brooksian the way he enters this interview and exits. And uh, he goes through a lot of stuff. He goes through early days, talks about his late wife and how important she was to him. And if you guys can find that documentary, I don't know if it's still on Netflix or wherever yeah. I found it. For a long time. And, and I think for me, I mean, my mom grew up in Hollywood. There's, there's a difference of, I think, knowing the, just the culture of Hollywood. Mel Brooks helped change a lot of things, I think. Yeah, for, and for the record, I'm from San Diego, and I hate L.A., so I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Just throw that out there. Right, get that, on, get that on record. I'm from north side of San Diego. I'm not in San Diego. I'm just outside <laughs> San Diego. North side, motherfucker. That's what this <laughs> All right, uh, I think we can I think we can wrap up here, and this was awesome. Great to have some guest hosts on here. So uh, thank you to both of you for joining us. So basically, uh, yeah, Daniel and, Sh and Shana, where can we find you on the interwebs? Well, we uh, if you if you're not sick of listening to us talk now, um, you can you can listen to uh, now 73 episodes we put up uh, talking about Doctor Who. Sure. Uh, you can find that at OISpaceman. That's OISpaceman all in word. .com. Uh, we just put up a, a discussion of Planet of the Ood, which went on for over two hours because we had our uh, 
friend Jack Graham on, and um, that was pretty amazing. And uh, next week, as kind of this episode goes up, it'll be Earthshock, which is a Superman story from 1982. So uh, check out that if you're so inclined. And uh, that pretty much uh, what Shane and I have done here in the, on this podcast is very much what you can expect on my Spaceman. So that's that's worth checking out. Right on. And uh, Ryan, where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, I've been doing a whole lot lately. Uh, YouTube channel, San Diego Beer Vlog, and SD Beer Vlog on Facebook. Uh, haven't really been doing a whole lot of videos on uh, beer or anything related to that uh, recently, but still very still involved with the San Diego beer scene, still homebrewing and doing the whole beer thing. And Are you still writing for, uh, what is it, the West Coaster? Or yeah, I, I might as well plug that, westcoastersd.com. Uh, it's a local periodic uh, or newspaper now in San Diego. covers the entire county, and I do the homebrew column on that. Well, we'll and link it in the show notes. Yeah, you can you can uh, download the 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 PDF or whatever of each month's copy, and then we'll do local you know news on what's going on on the website as well. Right on, awesome. Uh, okay, again, thank you guys for joining. Ryan and Shana, you're definitely welcome back anytime. We'll, we'll figure out some movies to do, and it'll be a lot of fun. We are now on iTunes. If you go to our Podbean site, uh, you just have to click on the spinning hypno wheel, and you'll go right to our iTunes. Since we've gone on iTunes, we've shot up by about three or 400 uh, listens, so that's awesome. And anyone who is a constant listener, if you want to, please go to our iTunes site and give a five-star rating and a review. Written review doesn't really matter. You can say, these guys are a bunch of fucking assholes, and I hate them all, and I wish Hitler would piss on them. Go right ahead. I don't think they read that shit, but as long as you give us a five-star review, that'd be great, because apparently that is the sort of ticket to uh, getting more and more more and more listens on iTunes, I guess. Apparently it gets you up in the rankings or some shit. I don't know. I, I put a review on uh, Oi Spaceman, by the way. I gave you guys a five-star review, so... Oh, nice. So, yeah, uh, and we'll get, you know, the trailer at the end. We'll tell you where to go and do all that shit. And, uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you guys for joining me, and uh, we'll see you... Next week, it's if we get the schedule together, we'll have another special guest, and we'll be doing Sean Connery in a red diaper through most of the film in Zardoz. That'll be a lot of fun. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>